Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales introducing the show today and it's a bit of a special one because we are re-airing an interview which Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of the late Billy Graham, did with us here at Premier. This originally aired in 2016 but we wanted to make it available here on The Profile podcast for you. It's a fantastic interview. I'm going to hand you over now to Charmaine Noble-McLean for the rest of today's show. I do hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Charmaine Noble-McLean and welcome along to the programme. She's been described as the best preacher in the family, ironically by one of the world's best-known preachers. The man who said that is her dad, none other than Billy Graham. She is Anne Graham Lotz. And here she talks about her personal struggles, finding God, her incredible mom, and of course her father. But first, I asked Anne to describe her earliest memories of growing up in the Graham household. My earliest memories, um, I'll just give you sort of generally, that it was um, a home full of fun and love. Um, I will tell you this. I remember somebody asked me one time. It was on national television, and he said, what was the first thing you did in the morning? You know, and, I, and he was very, you know, like a professional preacher asking me. And I think he thought I was going to say, we got up every morning, we prayed, we read up. I told him, the first thing we did in the morning, we got up and fought. You know, I've, Franklin was um, a little bit younger than me. He's five years younger, and he stirred everything up. So we, we all fought first thing in the morning. We were very, um, all of us, very strong-willed, strong personalities, but we loved each other. And um, But there was a lot of activity in our home. But the neatest thing about my home growing up was that it was very centered on Jesus. And so I was taught from a, a young age to love Jesus, to obey Jesus, to serve Jesus. But it was when I was... I can't remember the year. I was seven, eight, or nine years of age. I remember it was on Good Friday. I'd watched a film of Jesus on television, and I knew that he had died on the cross for me. And I asked him to forgive me of my sin, to come into my heart. And I believe as a young girl, he took me seriously. I was born again into God's family. And because God doesn't have grandchildren, you know, you have to make your own decision. Just because I'm Billy Graham's daughter didn't mean that I was a child of God. So I had to make my own decision about Jesus. And um, and I did. And then I just grew in that relationship. So, uh, and the the home life, I believe, um, caused me to make that decision early, but it, and then it nurtured that decision in my life. So I'm very grateful for the home in which I was raised. There's two things I want to ask you at yeah. there. Who normally won when you had the little scraps at home? Uh, <laughs> you had the fights. Who normally won in the house? I did you, always. Of course, uh, you yes, did. of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when you that day that you watched the film and you said to the Lord that you wanted to accept Jesus as your savior, were you on your own that, at that yes, time? Yes, I was on my own. I was wow. in my bedroom. And just on my own, on my knees beside my bed, I told. I felt very convicted. It was, in, and I know that was looking back. That was the Holy Spirit, you know, who was convicting me of my sin. And and I can remember distinctly when I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me to come into my heart. I remember feeling lighter, like a load had been lifted. You know, it was interesting. And and so that year. Um, so I must have been about eight or nine. I read the Bible through, all the way through. And that began my love affair with the scriptures. I love the Bible. I love God's word. And I've never stopped loving it. There have been times I've read it more consistently than other times. I, I know when I was, I married young and had had children when I was young. And just the busyness of being a young mother with, you know, young children, young toys, young mm-hmm. Sticky fingerprints, you know, <laughs> little words. I, I just felt so small and confined. And so my Bible reading and Bible study just went to the periphery of my life. So my relationship with God sort of went to the periphery. I, I knew I was still his child, but um, but it was as a young mother I drifted from him because of the busyness in my life. We'll and, talk about that a yes. bit later on. But just to stick with you, Anne, yes. as a young girl, do you think that you were a particularly exceptional child? I mean, you talk about having read the Bible in a year and at the age of about eight or nine. That's fairly unusual, isn't it? Or is it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, that, that was just my experience. Uh, I don't I don't view myself as an exceptional child or an exceptional adult. You know, I'm just a, right now I'm, I'm a woman on a journey. And my journey began, I'm sure, from God's perspective before I was even conceived. But, um, but my journey began as a child of God when I was that young girl and made that decision for him. So I just... 
you know, life is a journey one day at a time, instead, and, and sometimes there are bends in the road and things that we don't expect, but that relationship with God that I established young is what's carried me through. That's the consistent, that's the, that's the common denominator, the bedrock mm-hmm. of my life. And what was your parents' reaction to your, to your news that, I've decided to follow mm-hmm. Jesus? I'm not sure I told them. <laughs> You know, I don't think, I don't remember, I, I remember sharing it with my mother, actually, um, but nothing dramatic. I wasn't a bad girl before and a good girl after, you know, it was just a decision I made. But um, so uh, I, don't, I don't know that, I don't remember a reaction from them. What do you remember of your dad during those years? My father um, is very affectionate. He treated me as though I was an only child, but he treated each of us like that. So he just has a wonderful way of making you feel special. And he made me feel very special. When we would go out, he held my hand. You know, when um, he, he would hold me on his lap. When I would go back to his study and interrupt him, he never acted as though it was an interruption. He, um, uh, every Sunday afternoon he was home, we always took hikes together. He loved dogs, and I love dogs, and he always made sure I had a dog. And if something happened to my dog, he immediately went out, and he was the one that helped me choose another dog. You know, he, um, so so there, for each of us, he developed something that would be what we would have in common with him to develop a relationship with us. So he was gone a lot. It's been estimated he was gone 60% of my growing up years. But I didn't know that was unusual. You know, um, I had nothing to compare it with. You know, it wasn't until I got married, had children, and saw the way my husband fathered my children that I realized what I had missed. So at the time, I didn't know I was missing anything because that was the way it was, you know. (laughs) So when Dad was gone, it was Mom at home and Mm -hmm. perhaps extended family. Mm -hmm. Um, Describe your relationship with your Mom. She was very, she must have been a pretty special person to cope with a a lifestyle like that. She was very strong. So she was both mother and father, which I think when she moved to heaven seven years ago made it very difficult because it was like losing both parents in a sense at once. It was very, uh, I, I didn't realize that, I guess, until she left, but, but she had a wonderful sense of humor. She was deeply spiritual. She loved Jesus with a passion. She loved his word. I know that's where I got it from. I saw her, it didn't matter what time I got up in the morning, she was already up and she had a big flat-topped flat desk, and on it she had 14 different translations of the Bible, and she would read and make her notes, and <clears throat> actually she gave me her Bible so that when she moved to heaven, she left me her Bible with the notes all in the margins, every page, every part of the page marked with things that uh, she had gleaned from it. Um, and so her, her love for God's word, her, her love for God's people, she was raised on the mission field, born and raised in China. She um, was a brilliant conversationalist. Whenever she went to the White House, she was always seated at the president's table because she could carry the conversation. And and she was so well-read. She knew people. I remember speaking to William Buckley one time, and he was telling me um, he was at the White House at the president's table, and my mother was there, and said that there was another woman at the table. Nobody knew who she was, and my mother knew exactly who she was and had just read her book, and she was some best-selling author that nobody <laughs> recognized. But she... So she was very intelligent, very well-read. She played the piano. She majored in art, so she was an artist. Um, And she was somebody that had a worldview that I think when she married my father, my father didn't have. And it was a result of being married to my mother, who was born and raised in China, schooled in North Korea. She had a worldview when they began that relationship that then... I believe was um, something of a seed in my father's life that then gave him, uh, of course, he, he loved the gospel and obeyed God's call in his life, but she was the one that had that perspective that comes when you're born in another country and you've traveled the world, uh, even at a young age. She was remarkable. She so. sounds like an amazing woman. Yeah. Who do you think you most take after, your mom or your dad, and why? You know, I, I can't answer that. I, you'd have to ask other people that. I'm sure I'm a combination of both. Um, I, I want to have my mother's passion for Jesus um, and, I, and her passion for his word. I believe I have that. I want to have my father's faithfulness to God's call in his life. He has not, he's 96, he has not yet lost his focus on the gospel, reaching people for Christ, and to maintain that focus when he had so many temptations to lose it. 
uh, so many things he could have done besides what God had called him to do. He never lost his focus. It was never about him. My father is a very humble man, um, and I think that comes from his walk with God. If you walk with God, you're not very impressed with yourself. It's when people you know, drift from God and they start reading the press or start seeing what other people say about them, then they become either puffed up or they become, you know, uh, whatever. But but my father, he, he is a truly genuine, authentic man of God who's very humble and has never forgotten that he was just the son of a dairy farmer, you know. And um, so, so that humility, that focus and that faithfulness to uh, God's call in his life, I would want. Um, and along with my mother's passion, my mother had a wonderful sense of fun. She was not stuffy at all. I think that and that made a big impact on me because as deeply spiritual as she was, if she had been stuffy, pious, uh, that would have turned me off. You know, as it was, you, you want to know Jesus because she was so wonderful and she thought he was so wonderful and it was contagious. You talked about humility and your father's the, the immense level of humility he had and he must have had to have continued all those years to date. Um, how, does, how do you feel about the statement he made about you, that remark that you're the best preacher in the family? I mean, how, do, how did you take that when he came out with those words? You know, uh, I take that, that was his blessing on me. And, um, and there's a lot of controversy about women in ministry. And I think it was my father's way of just putting his hand on my shoulder and saying, this is my daughter, and I give her my blessing. And so um, nobody is a better preacher in our family than my father. I, if you judge it by the impact, <laughs> you know, there, nobody in human history other than the Apostle Paul or Jesus would be better, greater preacher than my father, just judged on the, the impact. So that's not what he—I don't take it as saying that I'm a better preacher than, than my father. I think he was saying that this is my daughter and she has my blessing and— um, so that's the way I take that, which, um, which is a treasure to me. You know. We're going to talk about the blessing and where that has led you to to date. Um, but let's just talk about your early years as Anne, the young woman. How did you meet your husband? I met him. Um, and I you was, smile yeah. as you start to talk about this really sweet. <laughs> well, because of the way it was set up. My father set it up. Ah. And... Um, so there was a conference across the valley from where I was raised, and it had um, athletes there, just very prominent athletes from our country. And uh, he, I was seeing someone locally, uh, not in love, not even, but I was seeing somebody a lot. And my father wanted me to date one of these Christian athletes, so he put out the word. And uh, Danny Lotz is the one that, from his side. He was trying to arrange a date with me. So when he found out that my father wanted me to date somebody from there, he said, I'll, I'll do that. So he took me out um, just for dinner. I didn't think anything of it because he's about 12 years older. My father had arranged it. I was doing it to please my father, but I enjoyed it very much. Um, but it never occurred to me it was even a date. It was just something I did to please my father. But my husband will tell you he fell in love that first night. And um, so three dates later, three uh, I saw him one other time, and then the third time I saw him was about three months later. And I was in Denver, Colorado, and I was uh, going to my father's uh, he had a meetings there in the stadium. My husband was in the Air Force. He had finished college, dental school. I had just gotten out of the Air Force. And so he drove up to see me in Denver. And so that's the third time I've seen him. And he told me that he was in love with me and wanted to marry me. And I told him I could care less. That wasn't on my radar. And uh, Yeah, I was very <laughs> harsh. And so I went and told my father that night, thinking, well, he'll just take care of Danny Lodz. And my father looked at me, and he said, I think that's who you're going to marry. And, uh, and deep in my heart, I thought that was right, but I wasn't in love. You know, I was 17 at the time. So, um, so it was a year and a half later that I was married. <laughs> I married at 18, and we've been married now 48 years, going on our 49th year, and I know it was the right decision. That's an amazing story. Yeah. If you were in another setting, some people might say that your dad arranged your marriage yeah, for you. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Wonderful. So, but, I, but he didn't force it. No. You know, it was not forced. I did not have to marry who he said, you know. So you went on and had children early. As you said, you got married and before you were 20. You had yeah. children at yes. an early age. Earlier you were talking about the challenges of being a young mom uh, with 
lots of children around you, the finger, the sticky fingerprints yeah. on the walls yeah. and the like. Yeah. That must have been quite a shocker for you to be effectively yeah. almost like your mum was yeah. uh, when she was yeah. a similar age to you. Uh, it was, except that she had help in the home. Mm. I didn't. <laughs> and um, so I was very tired, very busy. Um, I didn't lose my love for the Lord. I just was so busy. And um, and I wanted my children. I love my children. I have a son and two daughters. Um, and but it was when my my children were five, three, and ten months old. I felt very homesick for God, and I wanted Him back first in my life. I didn't know how to go about that. And somebody told me about an organized Bible study. And I knew my mother, you know, I told you that she spent time in God's Word, reading God's Word. Every night when I went to bed, didn't matter what time I went to bed, I would find her on her knees in prayer. I knew that she drew her strength. I never, never saw my mother lose her temper. And with five of us, you know, all strong will, and we we're fighting, and never saw my mother lose her temper, never heard her raise her voice. You I know, to ask her about that. How oh, she well, she that. did that because she developed that relationship with God. That was, that was the hub of her life, and that's what I wanted. But I, And I knew that I needed to spend time in prayer and Bible reading to do that. I just didn't have the discipline to do it. So when somebody told me about this organized Bible study, that I wanted to be in it, but nobody, it, we didn't have it in our city, and nobody would start it. So I started it so I could be in it. Um, basically, I had 500 women that showed up, um, and it terrified me. I would be so afraid, and I was to teach it, you know. Um, and I was so terrified to stand in front of them that I would go in the back and be sick before I would stand out in the pulpit. But I wanted I wanted to come back into that relationship with God so badly. And I felt that this was the way that that I put up with that. And and sure enough, you know, and when that I got sick every week for six weeks. I, I taught that class every week. Um discipled uh, you know, uh, sixty women who were leaders of the small groups and did that for 12 years, and never missed a class because I wanted everything God had for me. So every week for 12 years, I taught that class with while I was raising my children. And what God did for me is to bring me back into that love relationship with Jesus that comes through uh, spending time with Him in prayer, spending time in His Word, following through in obedience, whatever He says in His Word, then I apply it to my life and I live it out. I do it. Um, let's and, talk, let's mm-hmm. talk about that leap you made from being this young mother mm-hmm. with three children running around, yearning for God mm-hmm. to be centre mm-hmm. in, in your life and uh, knowing that there was an opportunity here to get back in, mm-hmm. in touch with him through this Bible study group. You weren't qualified. You hadn't any that's particular right. theological training. No, right. what, was it, what, what was it that made you say, I'm going to do this? Because many of us sit and think, I want to do this, yeah. but never get out yeah. of the seat. Yeah. How did you leap out your set, out your because my desire to know God, my desire for that relationship with him was stronger than anything else. So, um, so I just began to pursue it. And, I, you know, there was an application process, all that I got turned down. And so uh, I thought, well, I'd, I'd do something else. And then um, we're actually on vacation. My mother-in-law was reading the Bible out loud in a car packed with children and her husband my it was just you know chaos inside this car for like 12 hours as we were driving and she was reading the bible out loud and she came to a verse um that said that i've opened a door for you that nobody can shut and i know that you have a little strength uh but you've not denied my name and and i i said pass me the bible and i read it and i knew god was speaking to me my first time that he had really spoken to me through a just a random verse like that that seemed to pop up off the page. And he, he said, I know you have a little strength, and I didn't have much at all. And so he was saying, Anne, I know you only have a little strength with all these children running around and you're tired, but I've opened a door for you. And I felt he meant that class. So, um, so I went back and reapplied, and this time the door opened. And so I stepped out, and just faith, you know, just, but I, I can't, I don't, understand, but I just did it. And since then, I've taken other steps of faith. And you have to take a risk that you're going to fail. You have to take a risk that maybe that's not an open door. But I'll tell you what, if he hasn't opened the door, you can't push it open. So you can try, but you can't force open a door that he doesn't open. So so doors began opening, opening, opening. I, I was trained to, to lead the class, 
came back, and when I opened it up for sign-ups, there were 300 women for the first six weeks, and it immediately grew to 500 with a, a long waiting list. He gave me another verse from Malachi that he would open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that I couldn't hold. And as long as I taught that class, we had more women wanting to be in the class than we could hold, and I turned it over three times. So turned out 500 women, turned in 500. You know, it was amazing. We started 10 other classes, five or 600 each in them, still going today. And so God God began a work in my city with one uneducated mother with small children, a housewife who just wanted to know him. And so he has blessed that ministry. But after 12 years, he spoke to me from Deuteronomy 1. And he said, in the first day of the 11th month of your 40th year, you tell these people you've been here long enough. You're to break camp and turn north. And um, first day of the 11th year, 11th month of my 40th year was April 1, 1988. And so I told my class I'd been there long enough. I was leaving. I turned it over to somebody else that was trained. So the, not, I think we had one person drop out of class, but the class maintained to this day. It's maintained. But I stepped away because God called me uh, from Acts 26 to go into all the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he began opening doors all over the world. And I don't have an agent. I don't even have a brochure. You know, it's just word of mouth. He sent me all over the world. And I've been going uh, 28 years, I guess. I started a nonprofit uh, corporation so that anything, any money that was donated or given to me, I don't take. I don't, I've never been on salary for my ministry. Um, my, the money that comes in supports my staff and enables me to do what I do. But my husband supports me, you know, so um, so I didn't take money from it. And the the books that I write or the the messages, the the CDs and things, DVDs that I sell, they they all go into funding the ministry, but I don't take money from the ministry. So that just goes into supporting the ministry that God's called me to. So that's been now 20, almost 27, 28 years. I'm listening to you mm-hmm. and I'm watching you and thinking to myself, this Anne mm-hmm. is obviously a very obedient and committed mm-hmm. Christian woman and loves God with yeah. all her heart. And I imagine if I were your dad or your mom, I'd be looking at my daughter thinking, she is some tough little cookie. (laughs) She is not someone to mess around with. You know, she's determined. Is that, Anne? Is there something quite, if you were a man, they'd probably say you were bullish. Are you? Um, I don't think so, because um, I leave that up to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens the doors for me. I just follow him. But I know I'm strong. You have to be strong. And the Lord promised me from Jeremiah 1, if, he told me from Jeremiah 1 that I, uh, because, let me give you this experience, early um, as I began to travel, I spoke at a pastor's conference, or 800 uh, church leaders and pastors there. I stood up to speak, and I had been invited, so I stood up to give the message, and some of them turned their backs to me. And I knew what they were saying, that a woman doesn't belong in the pulpit when there are men there. So that had not been an issue. I'd never come across that issue before. That's how naive I was. I, I never had <laughs> known that was a problem, but I went home and thought, you know, that's not that hasn't been a problem for me, but it's a problem for them, so now it's a problem for me. So I got on my knees and asked God to help me sort that out. So he spoke to me from Jeremiah 1. And when I say he speaks to me, it's just <clears throat> a verse comes up off the page, and it like it's illuminated, the old-timey people would say. And so from that verse, he said, don't be afraid of their faces. And I felt like he was saying, don't be afraid of their backs. You, you speak what I tell you, or I'm going to terrify you in front of them. In other words, and you're not accountable to your audience. You're accountable to me. And then he said, I'm going to make you strong. And, um, and he has made me strong. And I believe that God gives you the strength. He gives you the gifting. He gives you the power to do whatever he commands you to do. So the important thing is to make sure that you're doing what he commands, you know, what he leads you to do. And you don't know that for sure because it's a walk of faith. But as the verses come alive and, and you feel like he's speaking to you, then I just take the risk. God, I believe this is you speaking to me. This is what I'm going to do. And I step out in faith and... So after a while, you learn by experience to hear his voice and when he's speaking. I've made mistakes. You know, when I started um, Just Give Me Jesus Revivals for Women, which we had here at Royal Albert Hall, several years ago, and um, but I felt he was calling me to do that, and I stepped out in faith to do it, and the door slammed, you know, so I was embarrassed. I pulled back. About a year later, I tried again. The door slammed, and um, and again, I felt humiliated because I tried with other people, to, you know, and then uh, about two years later, I tried again, and I said, and I, I couldn't get rid of the burden, so I said, Lord, if this is from you, either remove the burden 
or give me a platform, you know, but I'm going to try one more time. And so I tried one more time, and, um, and the Lord opened the doors, and then we've held maybe 35 of those around the world, filling like Royal Albert Hall or the United Center in Chicago or the Air Canada Center in Toronto, Key Arena in Seattle, um, and, and places that people said, don't go there or it'll destroy your ministry because they eat up ministries. They, they, and the arenas have overflowed with women who just want a fresh touch from heaven. They just want an encounter with Jesus. So I'm not doing that now. We can talk about that in a moment if you like. But, but those, um, when I started, you know, you can, you can believe God's calling you, but sometimes he allows your vision to die and he slams the door and it refines your motive. So, yes. And so in the end, it has nothing to do with me. It's not something I'm, I'm not wanting my name in lights. I don't want to make an, I just want to be obedient. And so sometimes he refines our motive through those closed doors. You've talked about just give me Jesus. And uh, you, around that time, you were setting up Angel, the, the I think, nonprofit well, that's corporation. When, yeah, that's when I first, that was 12 years later, actually. Yeah. I'm, when I left my Bible study, I set up uh, the nonprofit corporation, which is Angel Ministries, just my initials, AGL. And angels in the Bible were messengers of God, and that's what I felt God called me to be. So for 12 years, I just traveled the world wherever God would send me. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that 12-year period, I, he opened the door in the year 2000 for me to do Just Give Me Jesus revivals for women. And, and I still did other speaking and writing but we we held those arena-sized events for women just to bring them to a fresh encounter with Jesus. Join me and my guest, Anne Graham Lotz, in part two of The Profile, where we will continue to look at her life and her faith. Everyone's favourite satirist, Adrian Plass, pens a new sacred diary for the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine with his unique take on the phenomenon of the Christian festival. Plus, we ask, how should believers respond to identity politics? Is smoking the cardinal sin it's often made out to be? Hugh Ross tells how astrophysics brought him face-to-face with the creator. And we bring you a special report on the megachurch movement in the USA, going behind the scenes of six of America's biggest churches. All that plus much more. Ask for your free edition at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to part two of this candid conversation with Anne Graham Lott's daughter of one of the world's best-known preachers, Billy Graham. Here, she begins to talk about her latest book, which features the story of Hagar, mother of Ishmael. Well, I had written on the life of Abraham. He's one of my very favorite characters in Scripture because he's a very ordinary man that became extraordinary because he just followed God in a life of obedient faith, just what I've been describing to you, what I want to do in my life. I just want to follow God one step at a time, one day at a time, just in obedient faith. And Abraham did that and became extraordinary. And so when I finished writing that book called The Magnificent Obsession, you're just embracing the God-filled life, um, the story of Hagar stood out to me, and the, and the Lord does that. He just puts something on your mind, brings it to your mind, and I went back and did a study on Hagar, and and I thought, this is a story that needs to be told. And so I began to write it. In fact, I wrote it all the way through, and um, and I knew it wasn't finished, that I needed to go back and rewrite, and I rewrote, and I, and as I did, God gave me experiences that just gave layer after layer of depth to that um, Hagar, as you know, was a, a little servant girl in uh, Egypt. Pharaoh gave her as a slave to Abraham and Sarah. And so for 10 years, she was in their home. She, you know she came to love them, trust them, believe in Abraham's God. And then Abraham's wife one day came and said, you're to have Abraham's baby. And she had no choice, you know. So she had to go sleep with Abraham, uh, got pregnant with his son, and then Hagar fell back onto her Egyptian nature. She became arrogant and uppity because Sarah had never had a child, and Sarah abused her, and Hagar ran away. And so you have this little servant girl, this slave girl, pregnant, running away, and that's the first time the angel of the Lord comes in Scripture, the pre-incarnate Son of God. First time he appears is to an Egyptian, not an Israelite, is to a woman, not a man, is to a little slave girl, not a free woman. You know, and he finds her on the desert road running away, and he says, Hagar, is this what you want to do with your life? You know, and, and he talks her um, through it, and in the end, he says, you have to go back. You have to repent. 
And Hagar, before she went back, she named it this, I now know the one who sees me. And she had established a personal relationship with God. She went back, submitted to Sarah, so she repented. Mm -hmm. She went back and submitted to Sarah 14 years later. Abraham threw out of the home. This time God told him to because her son was persecuting Sarah's son, Isaac. And so she was wounded, wounded, wounded by God's people. And in the second severe time, God was on their side. And so she didn't talk to God. She was silent when she ran away. But Ishmael, her son, was crying out to God. And I just wonder if he was crying out to his father's God on her behalf. And God heard the cry of Ishmael, and he appeared to Hagar for the second time, we're told in Scripture, and talked her through it. And then, anyway, saved her life and gave her a wonderful future, um, blessed her, blessed Ishmael, blessed their descendants. All Arabs and Muslims today look to Hagar and Ishmael as their um, parents, you know, and God gave them a lot of oil, gave them some wonderful land, and but his purpose, he loves Ishmael and Hagar as much as he loves Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, but his purpose for them is different, mm-hmm. and we have to be very distinct about that and clear about that. As he, he loves us all equally, but his purpose for each of us is different. His purpose for Isaac was different than his purpose for Ishmael, mm-hmm. but, the, but the healing journey, can I just tell you, it starts with our decision to forgive the person who's wounded us, and it's a decision we make not because they deserve it, because they don't but because God commands us to forgive others as we've been forgiven. So it's an act of worship. So we do this because he says so. And then when we choose to forgive, we don't feel forgiving, but we choose to forgive. And then to demonstrate that we've made that choice, we reach out to bless the person who's wounded us. And what it does is help our spirits. We just rise up above the pain. And, uh, and the Lord just uses that to help set us free. And the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the anger, it just melts away. And, and I, I will say this, that I'm trusting that the God of all the earth will do the right thing. And in the end, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so there will be an accounting. He will sort it out at the end. But I'm, I'm free to just let all of that go, to, to love those other people, to bless them, to keep my focus, to get on with my Christian journey. I don't have to be bogged down in the bitterness, the anger, the unforgiveness, the what if or th- if only or the, you know, I, you can just get mired in that. And, and do you think it's a choice we make yes. to be bogged down? Um, in the bitterness, mm. or, or is, are there other things preventing us from seeing what God simply says, forgive others yeah. as you would want to be forgiven? Why do so many of us get caught up in the, mm. the depth and the, the dirtiness of mm. hurt yeah. and, and being wounded and therefore retaliation yeah. and yeah. all that comes yeah. with it? Because it does hurt. And I think the natural reaction is to live in it. So and it's a to, choice. Yeah, but it's also, it's a choice that comes naturally. It's almost like instinct. It's almost like being hungry or thirsty. We just hurt and we want to lash back, and that's got to be broken. And to me, if you look at Jesus, he was wounded too. He's the Lord of glory. He's the King of kings. He's the creator of the universe. And the Bible says he he took off his glory robes, and he left heaven's throne, and he came down to earth, and he submitted to a woman's womb for nine months and a, the birth process and confined himself to a body of a little two-year-old crying for something to eat or drink and, and grew in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. But he, he understood what it was to be wounded, to be lied to, to be betrayed, to be criticized, to be ostracized, and in the end to be crucified. And, but it says by his wounds were healed. You know, so, so coming to the cross, taking a good look at who Jesus is, what he, God, put him through so that we could be he- we can be healed of our wounds we can be healed of the bitterness and the unforgiveness but i think we come to the cross and we just say god this person doesn't deserve me to forgive them to let it go but i see what jesus endured for me if i'd been the only person who needed to be healed the only person who needed to be forgiven jesus would have died on that cross submitted all that wounding for me and so because, because of my love for him, out of gratitude to him, then I'm going to give him my wounds and let him heal me. And, and he will, he can, and then we're set free. We don't have to live there. But, but I think it helps to know that at the end of all things, he's going to set it right. He, he will hold them accountable, maybe in this life, maybe not. You know, the, I write in that book about a church that threw us out, and that church today is thriving. You know, I mean, well, 
I won't say it's thriving, but they, they're still in existence. People still go there. They, you know, and, um, and I don't have to hold the church accountable. You know, I just let them go. God will sort it out. But I don't want them to have power in my life to hinder me at all in my following the Lord. So when you hold on to bitterness and anger and unforgiveness, you're really giving that other person power over you. It's like drinking the poison, hoping the other person will die. You know, <laughs> doesn't work that way. So you have to let it go. Don't let them poison you because you refuse to forgive them and, and let them go. So just let them go to God. He will sort it out. And that sets us free to love them, to bless them, to get on with our Christian journey, to grow in our knowledge and our personal relationship with God. Something related to what you've been talking about, Anne, um, I'm just quoting from an interview you did with Time magazine uh, some years ago. You said that religion can be the greatest impediment to finding God. Some people were fairly critical of that statement, that remark. What did you actually mean when you said that? You know, just exactly that. Religion is a huge hindrance. And let me define religion, okay? Because religion is man reaching up to God, trying to reach God through our own philosophies, our own religious systems, our own, you know, our our religious systems, every religion in the world, it's like a Tower of Babel. In in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, they built the tower to reach to heaven. And it was their own works, their own system, their own philosophy. And God had to destroy that, you know, because you cannot reach God on your own. God is God, we are we, you know. And so God has reached down to us through Jesus Christ. So He's not offering us a religion. He's not offering us a church. He's not offering us a denomination or organization. God is offering us a personal relationship. And we, we receive that through faith in Jesus. We come to the cross of Jesus Christ, acknowledge we're sinners, tell God we're sorry we're willing to turn away from our sin, embrace Jesus as our Savior, asking him to forgive us, to come into our hearts. He gives us eternal life, which means a personal relationship with God now, heaven when we die. He puts his Holy Spirit within us. We become a child of God. That's not a religion. That's a, that's a relationship with God. There's a big difference. Religion gets everybody sidetracked, causes wars, divisions. It's a relationship with God that um, bridges all those gaps and uh, makes us one. We're, we're a family because he is our father and we belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Religion gets in the way. It does. When we look at the world, you've touched, just touched on this, we see a world in financial crisis, mm-hmm. we see poverty, even in countries that we expect to be the richest. Mm-hmm. Um, we see issues like human trafficking, just thinking about um, Hagar's story, for mm-hmm. example, um, natural disasters. Many would conclude that we are a world in crisis. Mm-hmm. But let's focus on the church. In your opinion, Anne, do you think the church is in crisis? Is Christianity in crisis? Uh, Christianity is not in the sense that when everything is gone, Jesus will still be here um, and those who put their faith in him. But I think the world is in crisis. I think the church um, is asleep for the most part, generally speaking. We're caught up in secondary issues. Uh, And I don't want to speak so much for the church in the UK. I look at the church in America. And so I've dedicated the last few years of my life to trying to wake up God's people. I believe we're living at the end of human history as we know it. I believe Jesus is soon to return in glory and power. But before he comes back, we're going to be going through some very hard times. I believe we'll see judgment on earth, just bring trying God himself trying to wake us up. And um, But I don't think the church, generally speaking, is getting the message. We saw that after 9-11, you know, when the terrorists hit the trade centers in um, New York City and then the Pentagon and the place in Pennsylvania. Then for a couple of weeks, everybody went to church, you know, and they were all looking for God. And then it just melted away into this political correctness where everybody's religion is their own and we have many gods and you can have Allah, you can have God, you can have Muhammad, you can have Jesus, you can have Confucius, you can have Buddha. And, and in the church in America, we bought into the political correctness and somehow feel that we're unloving, intolerant, insensitive if we exalt Jesus. And so 
you know, Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, then I'll draw all people to myself. And to compromise who Jesus is, he is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. He's the only son of God, God the, the God-man, perfectly human, perfectly God, all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. There is nobody like him. And he's the Savior, he's the Redeemer, he's the Lord of glory. One day he'll come back to rule and reign on this earth. And within the church, if we lose sight of who he is and lose sight of the gospel, that all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory, that the wages of sin is death, separation from God now and forever. But God so loved us that he sent Jesus to die for us, that if we put our faith in him, we would not perish, we would not go to hell, but have everlasting life. We lose sight of the gospel, then why do we even exist? You know, so so this is a time to sharpen our focus. And I think in the, the crisis of our world, this is a time to give the hope that we have because Jesus is coming. And, and, you know, even if I'm wrong, if he doesn't come back in my lifetime, as I believe he's going to if I live out my natural lifetime, but he's coming for me at my death. So one way or the other, I'm going to be standing before Jesus. And I want to to have something to show for my life that I've lived on earth, something to, to give to him after all he's given to me. And I want to take as many people to heaven with me as I can because I share the gospel clearly and winsomely and relevantly. And um, and I want to be ready any moment. If, if I were to drop dead this afternoon, I, I want to know that that I'm right with God. So it's I have hope. I know I'm going to heaven. I know one way or the other, either at his return or my death, I'm going home. And I'm going to see my mother, my grandparents. I'm going to see Jesus. So wonderful hope. And uh, so it's a, this is a time when the world is in crisis to let people know there is hope for the future when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. You talked about the church sleeping, something I've heard echoed here many times very recently. Why is that, Anne? Is it because of this fear of being seen as politically incorrect? Is it because we're not reading our Bibles, as I've read before, that many Christians these days don't read their Bible? Perhaps in the UK, certainly, we've got statistics that say that churchgoers read their Bible perhaps once a week, if they're lucky, more likely, once a month. Yeah. Where, where, where has it all gone wrong? Um, I don't know that for sure, but I know the Bible says that at the end of the age, there will be a spirit of deception, and God will allow... Uh, and I believe we're in that now, where truth is spun and the truth is exchanged for a lie and what was wrong yesterday now is right today. And so we're just, uh, and if you don't have the bedrock of a foundation to your faith, which is the Word of God, then you just sort of get caught up in these winds and whims and um, and then anything goes. So, um, so part of it could be that we've lost our foundation. We haven't lost it, we've left it. The foundation is God's Word. There's no other foundation you can lay, the Bible says, than faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we need to know God's Word to, to know um, that faith and, and to know who Jesus is even. So I think that's one thing. One, one thing we are discussing at dinner last night was the fact that parents don't seem to be passing on faith in Jesus to their children. They leave it up to the church or to professionals, but they themselves are not taking the responsibility of what Deuteronomy tells us, to, to teach them when they get up in the morning, when they're walking during the day, when they're eating, when they go to bed at night, to teach them God's Word, to teach them uh, the Gospel, to, to see that they're serving the Lord at a young age. So, so, so you know, I don't exactly know that. I just know for myself. You know, I, I can't answer for the world or the church at large, but for myself. As a person who's put my faith in Jesus, I want to love him, serve him, obey him. I want to pass that on to my children. I want to maintain the vibrancy in my faith. And, and I think one of the things in America that has caused us to be um, apathetic is the prosperity that we've had. It's so interesting. And so... Good times. Good times. And so when God allows us to go through hard economic times, that could almost be a blessing from him because then all of a sudden, whoa, we need God. We didn't think we needed him because we had everything. Now we need him just for the next, you know, the next bite we put in our mouths, the next day we live. The, you know, so, so it's interesting that sometimes he may allow us to lose the things that we were depending on so that we know that we depend on him alone. So. 
The I just want to come full circle for a minute because you were talking about the responsibility of parents to teach their children God's ways, to teach them God's word, to teach them God's word. And you started out in terms of your ministry, wanting to get back into the word of God as a young woman, a young mother, a young wife, and focusing particularly on women um, in your ministry. It's difficult these days for a woman to stand up and say, I want a relationship with God. There are so many demands on your life. Uh, being a, a parent um, feels very different to how it did in certainly my parents' days. You, you're, you're, you're divided up into so many different roles. Um, you've got so many other distractions. Just one piece of advice for that woman who is hungering, hungers for God, and doesn't know quite how to reach out and to grab hold of his hand. One piece of advice, Anne. Just tell him. Tell God you want him. Tell God you want that personal relationship. Tell God that you're distracted and busy and you want to, you want to, it's like setting my compass. You know, a compass, if you set it, when you, when you turn it any which way, the needle always points north. So I get up every morning and I spend time in prayer and Bible and it's just setting my compass. So with all the distractions and busyness of the day, any which way I turn, my thoughts turn back to God. I remember the verse, you know. I'm, like a magnet. Yes, yeah. yes. So I would just tell him. But I don't think our life is any busier, more distracted than the first century when the church was founded and exploded. I don't think it's uh, any busier, more dis- Well, you know, I do think it's busier and more distracted than when my parents were because we have email, we have internet, we have cell phones. I mean, they've made life more convenient, but they have made life more busy. And um, so maybe we have to be more intentional about the way we set our focus and set our compass. Um, but God is a great God, and he, he still hears our cry. Mm-hmm. He still answers our prayers. He still ever present with us no matter what we're going through where we are and he still loves us he's passionate about us i'm sure god's passionate about you taking a rest and having (laughs) respite and you know leisure time with your family what does Anne do to unwind what do you do when you're not working when i say working you know what i mean preaching Mm -hmm. busy with Mm -hmm. writing etc Uh, One of the things I do when I'm home, I get up early every morning, really early. Um, I walk two and a half or three miles. It's therapy for me. If it's raining uh, or snowing, I don't. But otherwise, it doesn't matter how cold, how hot, I walk two and a half miles, three miles outside. And then I go get a triple espresso (laughs) to wake myself up. And then I set my focus and I have time with God, Um, you know, prayer and Bible reading. But my life is different now. In a new season, my husband is not well. So I'm his caregiver. So actually to come to London, I had to hire a nurse to come in and stay with him. So when I go back home, this is my last travel trip for um, a long time until March. And then the next one is very close to home because I don't want to go this far away from him. If something happened, I couldn't get to him quickly. So in this season of life, I feel that God actually called me from, it's one of those verses that leaped up off the page, said, you know, you're to come home and shut the door. And so I believe I'm called of God to stay home. And, and to look after my husband. Uh, he's, his uh, physical condition is very complicated, many life-threatening issues, but he's still leading his Bible study, still serving the Lord, but I help maintain all of that, his appointments, his meds, his, um, it's, it's huge. So right now, it's a trained nurse taking my place because um, not, and, you know just a family member can't do it. Um, but I'm not stopping ministry. So God has opened the door. Uh, I'm doing videos and turning the website into a ministry. So people come to the website, not just like a brochure, but it's going to be ministry, Bible studies, a lot of free resources. I'm writing. I'll write a new book starting in January. And so there, there are many things I can do from home, stay in ministry, just not travel to do it. And I almost... Spend more time with Danny. Yeah, well, I have to. I'm, I'm there 24 hours a day. I have to be there with him. And then my office is just five minutes away. So I can go to my staff in my office, um, you know, and, and take go over there and tend to things, and then I work from home mm-hmm. so that I can be with him. So, um, you know, there are seasons of life, and we... And, and so to follow the Lord, he doesn't always have us doing the same thing. This is not about me. This is not about making a name for myself or building a ministry. I'm in ministry to know the Lord. And he called me. So, so this is an expression of my worship, my obedience, trying to follow him where he leads. If he leads me back home to shut the door, so be it. You know, I, things always go right. But uh, I have a, I'm contented. I have peace in my heart, you know. And, um, and there are... There are um, 
precious moments, precious family times. We have Thanksgiving in the States. So I'm going to rearrange my husband's dialysis. He's on kidney dialysis. His kidneys have failed. So I've rearranged it so that we can go up to my father's house for two days. So we'll have um, Thanksgiving Day and the day after. And I'll take my family, and we stay up with my father. Then other members of my extended family stay in other places. And we have a big family dinner. Last year there were 40 of us. If, if everybody came, there'd be wow. over 100. Yeah. So lots of, you know, family. And um, and that'll be a wonderful time. And then we have Christmas after that. And I always put on a, you know, a big Christmas where everybody comes to my house. So um, they're, they're wonderful times. We, we enjoy the moment. We enjoy being together. We love each other. I have three little grandchildren. So I can identify with um, you describing a young mother today raising young children. And I know that if you keep your focus and you can pass it on, all three of my granddaughters love Jesus. They're sharing Jesus with their classmates, reading their Bibles. Um, very precious. So I know it can be done, <laughs> but you have to be intentional. It takes a lot of effort, but Jesus is there. Are any of your children following your, your, your path? Um, you seem to have followed your father's. Yeah. Any of your children uh, following your... My son is working in a restaurant, but he preaches every weekend. He's an evangelist. He he has that gift to lead people one-on-one -on -one to Christ as well as from the pulpit. Um, my middle daughter has a lot of health issues, but her husband is the one that teaches the big men's class. She disciples young girls, high, uh, what we would have in high school, so I'm not sure what that equivalent would be, college, university age, and she disciples one-on-one. -on -one. My youngest one um, has developed something of a preaching gift, which is a surprise for me, But um, and I don't know why, because she was always sort of the irresponsible, crazy, fun one. But, and she's the one that, had, yeah, <laughs> she has the three little girls, but she's teaching a women's class. And I've heard her, the first time I heard her was uh, at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove. They invited her to do Christmas coffee for 500 women. And she stood up there and presented the gospel, led people to Christ. I was just blown away because she, she has a preaching gift as well as a teaching gift. Um, but she, she has all the responsibilities that I, I can just identify with her because of the ages of her children. Um, so it's just interesting, you know, as you see the next generation picking up the mantle and going on. And just thank God because we're to pass on that faith from generation to generation. We're to, to tell another generation who Jesus is, about his faithfulness, his love for us, uh, his death on the cross, and the forgiveness of sins we can have in his name, hope of going to heaven. So, so I see the next generation picking up, and now my grandchildren picking it up. So... But I believe Jesus may come back before they have an opportunity to pass it to the next generation. But who knows? You've um, spoken quite a lot about um, wanting to follow God and be obedient to him. And uh, we've reflected on your father and his ministry and how that's impacted you and the blessing he gave you um, as a young woman. You're not done yet. There's plenty more to go. So forgive the question. But how would you like to be remembered, Anne? I guess I don't care if people remember me. I want them to know Jesus. I want When they think of Anne Graham Lotz, I want them to think of Jesus. His cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign, his soon return, you know. If they, if they never remember Anne, it doesn't make any difference. There's no eternal fruit in that. But I don't want them to ever forget Jesus. You've been listening to The Profile with Anne Graham Lotz on Premier Christian Radio, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. For more interviews with leading Christians, visit premierchristianity.com, where you can also request a free copy of the latest edition of the magazine. Coming up next, Dave Rose looks at some of the best of the week in Premier Playback. <laughs> 